0: Hello and welcome to Long Story Short, the Future Cities podcast from Arcadis UK, in which we explore what lies ahead for our cities and the people who live, move, work and play in them. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up in this episode
1: A lot of the focus for us is actually being able to integrate with the public transport services How can we sync those up to make sure that people are getting access to the
2: cities Challenging these companies to articulate what their benefits are going to be Shouldn't be seen as necessarily being anti-innovation
0: Driverless cars are on their way Are we ready for them? No, not a car. I I don't think so.
3: I'd be fine with that if it's tested properly. A lot of planes and trains we get in nowadays are already automated.
0: My guests, three people shaping the path of autonomous vehicles. Natalie Zauber from Arcadis, Luke Rust from Immense Simulations and Kat Hanna from Lendlease. We'll examine whether driverless cars will mean transport for all and look at what our cities need to do to get ready for them. So clear the roads and climb in. That's all ahead on Long Story Short, the Future of Cities podcast from Arcadis.
3: And a very warm welcome to today's show. Joining me today. Hi, my name is Natalie Sauber and I'm the Market Intelligence and Mobility
2: Solutions Lead at Arcadis.
1: My name is Luke Rust and I'm Head of Commercial Development at Immense Simulations, deploying autonomous vehicles in London.
2: I'm Kat Hannah from Lendlease, and I'm working on the master plan for the development of Euston Station.
0: And how did everybody get here today, Natalie? It was actually a combination of walking and taking the bus. And would you have preferred or been happy to
3: have been brought here in a driverless car? You know what? Because it's in London, potentially I would have sticked to actually walking and taking the bus because it is still faster.
2: OK, Luke?
1: A combination of
2: walking and taking the tube. I cycled um, and I'd probably pick cycling, not least because it was sunny for once this morning.
0: So everybody here would have been happy with their method of travel and probably wouldn't have jumped in a driverless car had it been available. (laughs) Well, that's a good start on a programme dedicated to the future of autonomous vehicles. We've asked some people how they thought about hopping into a driverless car anytime soon.
2: Initial thought is quite scary. I don't drive that much. But um, maybe in central London, it wouldn't be as scary. I'd
3: be fine with that if it's tested properly. A lot of planes and trains we get in nowadays are already automated.
0: Okay, I totally understand. They use like planes, automats, pilots and all that, but no, not a car. I I don't think so. Well, people still seem to think it's a pretty distant prospect here in the United Kingdom. But driverless cars, or CAVs, connected autonomous vehicles, are already being trailed in the form of delivery vans in China, and right here on the roads in Milton Keynes, Cambridge and Oxford. Luke, you're heavily involved in bringing driverless cars to the streets of London very soon.
1: Yes, indeed. So we're supporting a programme called Endeavour with Addison Lee and Oxbotica uh, and trialling the the tests of passenger services in, in Greenwich across the next couple of years with the, the hope that that becomes a commercial service from 2021.
0: Natalie, how excited should we be about driverless cars?
3: Well, personally, I'm very excited about them. There's lots of different opportunities coming our way. But of course, we also have to be realistic about expectation when it comes to the adoption of this technology. We've seen already quite a few driverless cars on the road being tested, but none of them have yet been fully compatible with engaging with either pedestrians or the other environment around them.
0: And would you agree with that, Kat, that we're we're not quite up to speed
2: yet with them? The question of obviously asked in that Vox Pop there was about how people would feel being in a car. But, you know, as someone whose job it is to think about place, it also might think, well, how would you feel being a pedestrian in an area that is filled with driverless cars? How would you feel cycling? Or actually, how would we potentially feel if we were redesigning some of our streets to accommodate these vehicles? And I think they're the types of questions that we really should be looking at as well as just the driver experience. We have
0: to sit these cars within an incredibly busy environment, don't we, Luke? I mean, how are you figuring that out in Greenwich?
1: I think it's going to be a staged approach. Literally, we're taking a a fixed route service where we will have coned areas that we can use to test that and slowly start to integrate with the the transport services. A lot of the focus for us is actually being able to integrate with the public transport services. How can we sync those up to make sure that people are getting access to the cities? But it will be a gradual step-by-step process and and making sure that they are visible to other users on the road.
0: And ultimately, Natalie, this should, in theory, mean that everybody can get about whether you're disabled or drunk or can't get insurance this
3: is they say transport for all does it mean it will be fully accessible from day one for everyone no of course not let's have a look at the smartphones in the beginning adoption rate was rather slow and we didn't really know that we wanted them until we pretty much got them and i think autonomous vehicles are fairly similar to that adoption rate as well
0: can't pick up on that but the idea that we don't really realize we want them until we're given them
2: I think the parallel with smartphones, though, is an interesting one because actually, what we are potentially talking about here is, you know, additional vehicles on the road. So to use a parallel with something like ride sharing or Uber, you know, I think p- most people agree that it's a brilliant service. It's incredibly convenient. But actually, what a lot of these services have done. Is add additional vehicles. So, yes, it could be transport for all, but there is a chance by creating transport for all, we're actually creating more vehicles on the road and more congestion, resulting in inefficiency rather than actually an improved experience about how we move around our cities.
0: Luke, you're creating problems as well as solving them.
2: Maybe so, although, you know,
1: I think we need to. Um, apply the business models as well around them. You know, it's, it's not it's not purely the technology. You know, ride sharing is a real opportunity to take vehicles off the streets. We still need to encourage mass transit. You know, that might be a really early use case for autonomy is, is is autonomous buses. You know, I think there's a really good opportunity for them in London. We need to be encouraging more people to get on the on the larger mass transit services.
0: There has been Luke the the rather cynical suggestion that. When the manufacturers come along and say we can help blind people get from A to B, this is one of the first times that the blind pedestrian or the blind traveller has actually been fully factored into a marketing campaign.
1: Indeed, and Addison Lee, um, their you know hope on this is that they will always have a person in the car to support blind people, other travellers, people with baggage, people with kids. You know, yes, they will um, be able to provide autonomous vehicles but you'll always have that support function with them to provide the level of service that is associated with a company like Addison Lee.
2: But does this not then raise the question, well, actually, what is the problem that the autonomous vehicle is attempting to solve? And you also drew the parallel with how important it is we have mass transit, especially in cities like London, where you do need to move a lot of people, often in quite short windows of time, if you think of things like rush hour. Or again, you mentioned the use of driverless buses. Um, But actually... What would be the benefit of that? And I think most people feel actually, we only have to look to how difficult it's been to, for example, remove train guards on trains and the resistance there's been to that. So why do we necessarily expect it would be better or different or desirable for buses?
1: Yeah, and, and you know, the taxi services are going to be difficult to remove the people from those those vehicles as well. We're going to face a lot of competition, you know, a lot of pressure to to not go autonomous on a lot of these services. But the commercials do stack up for fleet operators to pull the humans out and, and, you know, provide a better level of service from having autonomous vehicles.
0: You're with Long Story Short, the Future Cities podcast from Arcadis UK. I'm Emma Nelson and with me are Natalie Sauber from Arcadis, Luke Rust from Immense and Kat Hannah from Lendlease. Natalie, pulling people out and giving us better service. What do you think of that?
3: It's a good idea. And we currently live in a whatever, whenever, wherever type of environment where we want everything fast delivered to us. And I think that's really what it comes down to. It's now down to the government, the companies, both private and public to make that happen in the most sustainable, in the most accessible way by using technology and other kinds of new market entries to really make that happen.
1: We ran a study in in Greenwich a couple of years ago called Merge, and that really tried to balance the focus for public and private entities entering this space. You know, we were trying to marry up the KPIs key performance indicators for the city as well as the fleet operators and see if we could find a city-compatible, commercially viable rideshare service. And it was very, very tough to get that balance right.
0: So there's one thing that I'm getting from all three of you, which was not perhaps what I expected. The emphasis here seems to be on the commercial impact. Kat, what do you think of that?
2: I mean, I think that's an interesting way of thinking about it. And I'd maybe slightly challenge this idea that one thing the government or regulators should be doing is... Addressing this fact that as individuals, we're very keen to have this, you know, I want what I want. I want it now. I want it delivered to me instantly. I want to be able to go wherever I can go with minimum effort, minimum friction. There are trade-offs to be had with that. And, you know, you can do all these things to make the situation better for the individual. But actually, again... You can't do that when it comes to things like mass transit because we're talking about finite space or we're also talking about people that are potentially going to be excluded from some of those options as well. So I think looking to the example of government here, this mentality of having everything instantaneously, getting everywhere incredibly quickly and incredibly cheaply actually is not sustainable for everyone. And so it then comes down to how can we manage expectations, how can we nudge behaviour and how can we get people thinking about the wider impacts of their decisions Not just on themselves and their own time, but on the city as a whole.
3: Very good point. And I believe what's really important for us here is at the moment, the way that it's been set up, it doesn't necessarily work. There's loads of um, cons on that, whether that's increase in global warming, pollution, and also obviously more people and cars on the road. But on the other hand, we should really look at it from different angles. We need to evaluate what's been happening in the past and how we can basically then make improvements towards the future. I think we're in a trial and error situation right now where we're trialing out lots and lots of different things and trying to see which one sticks, which one gets accepted by the public, which one gets the funding from different companies and which one really allows us to basically move forward.
0: Well, one thing that we really do need to address is whether the people who are going to be sitting in these driverless cars and the people who are walking around them actually trust them on our roads, who make sure that they're safe and ready for us. Well, we've heard from one woman who's working with Arcadis to make sure that our roads are ready.
4: Hello, I'm Kirsty Lloyd-Dukes and I'm the CEO of Latent Logic and we work on using state-of-the-art artificial intelligence, so AI, to test self-driving cars and prove that they're safe. It's just not safe to put a piece of software that hasn't been fully tested onto the road and hope it makes the right decisions, you just don't know if it will make the right decisions or not. So what we try and do is find a safer way of testing a self-driving car and that's through simulation. So we build virtual worlds that look, that behave just like the real world, but they're totally virtual. And that means they're completely safe. And if something goes wrong in the simulation, it doesn't really matter. 90% of the accidents that are caused by humans today are all from human error. And a lot of those are down to preventable things, which self-driving cars can avoid doing. Undoubtedly, there's a lot of work to do and more work that needs to happen to help self-driving cars to be able to predict what us humans are going to do and to test that. I do think there's a lot of work we can do to engage with members of the public, um, which is, you know, you and I as well, right, to help people understand what self-driving cars can can bring for them, but also to get people's feedback on actually what would make you comfortable that a self-driving car is safe. What kind of driving test do you think we should be putting self-driving cars through? And I hope through that kind of public engagement, like we're doing on Omnicav, that we might be able to start changing people's perceptions. That was
0: Kirsty lloyd jukes from Latent Logic testing driverless cars in Oxfordshire working with Arcadis. Luke, there's an awful lot there about the amount of reassurance that people want to know that these vehicles are safe for everybody who comes in contact with them.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are three rate limiters to the deployment of autonomous vehicles. Technology, is the technology going to be okay? Regulation, can government get on board and and support the deployment? And then the third one, critical one, is consumer engagement. And that's a challenge to the whole industry, really, to start engaging with the public, start letting them touch, feel, understand what the impact of these vehicles might be. And then, you know, hopefully that becomes a gradual movement towards being able to be around autonomous vehicles in the future.
0: And what are you doing for the people of Greenwich, who will clearly need... A certain level of reassurance and indeed encouragement for when this enormous change takes place.
1: So we are working with a company called DG Cities who are the digital arm of the borough of Greenwich and they are doing a lot of public surveys, lots of workshops, lots of local engagement to make sure that you know they are engaging with the services that are being deployed on their roads.
0: Natalie, Arcades has done quite a lot of research into how people feel about the safety of of
1: driverless cars, haven't they?
3: So we've sent out a survey and some of the results that came back were that over 50% of people think that autonomous technology is only five years away. The biggest barrier that they see is safety and cost. Over 60% would get into a driverless car and more people feel safe than not.
0: Kat, this all depends on whether the infrastructure is in
2: place, doesn't it, for us to trust the cars on our roads? What we're really talking about here is levels of automation. So actually, most of the people who drive a car now, your vehicle has some degree of automation. So people will use it for things like parking, cruise control. It's when you get up to level five that is what we understand to be fully driverless, which means you can have eyes off the road, hands off the steering wheel. And I think, again, people will probably feel slightly different about that and the fact that actually there's no potential for a human human to override the decisions that are being made versus something which is maybe often about a level three or level four, which is you may still have your steering wheel, but if you want to then override the automation, you can very much do that.
0: And indeed, if you go to the Science Museum in London anytime soon, there's an exhibition on driverless cars and there is one which actually is a bed on wheels. I'm not entirely sure whether Addison Lee is quite ready to deploy that yet, Luke, (laughs) but there is that real need to humanise technology so that we can make an emotional connection and trust it.
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, I was at CES in in Las Vegas earlier in the year. And, you know, a lot of the, the future thinking for automotive folks is around what can you do with a vehicle if it is driverless? What are the other prospects that we can do? Could it be a bed in the vehicle? Could it be other forms of delivery? Could it be a shop on wheels? Could it be an office on wheels? There's so much opportunity there, but we need to get through the next five years to make sure that it's safe for everyone.
0: You're with Long Story Short the future cities podcast from arcadis uk i'm emma nelson and with me are natalie sauber from arcadis luke rust from immense and kat hannah from lendlease Natalie, how ready are our systems for this? I mean, getting a driverless car on the road is one thing, but making it function around the rest of the city or indeed the country roads is something completely different, isn't it?
3: I think we need to look at it from a city by city perspective. Some cities are a lot more equipped to handle the kind of driverless cars on their future streets, whereas other cities, if we, for example, looking at London with its quite dense urban sprawl across it, it might be very difficult to deploy driverless cars in But then if we look at it from the Dubai perspective, where infrastructure is literally newly built with already driverless and to a certain extent artificial technology in mind, it's going to be a lot more easier to deploy that. Most of the testing that's been done is obviously driven out of the United States. People are a lot more accustomed to having driverless cars on the roads, especially within Silicon Valley. They read the news, they see it on television. So it's a lot more brought home and they've also been taken on the journey a lot earlier than perhaps in Europe, where driverless cars are still seen as a bit of a special or a niche area that only certain amounts of people have access to
2: take, for example, somewhere like Norway, where they actually already have very high ownership rates, particularly of Tesla, one of the highest rates outside the United States, moving towards an ownership model of driverless cars makes a degree of sense there. It's interesting that you brought up America in his example, and I'd perhaps... Potentially challenge the idea. I think if you went outside Silicon Valley or the deserts of Arizona, we would probably see some resistance to driverless vehicles. Not least, I think there is the kind of cultural attachment to driving. I was actually in California about two weeks ago, and you can still see there, for the most part, the car is very much still king, and people quite enjoy driving. And, you know, the car is their space, they enjoy the experience to a degree. But also, actually, well, what are some of the challenges in resistance as well? So, again, I know, Luke, I think you touched about, you know, Things like impact on the labor market. So again, going back to the American context, you know, in I think about 30 states um, across America, being a truck driver is the most common job um, for white working class men. And you actually think, well, let's say if we actually then remove that as a job because we've automated the delivery, uh, you know, delivery or freight. You know, people aren't just going to give up those jobs overnight. So, again, it's actually understanding there will be potentially cultural, there will be political resistance, I think, to roll out at a grand scale.
0: So it's all well and good having safe, clean and friendly driverless cars pottering about our cities that we've all discussed now. But what about when it comes to who's responsible for them? Whose job, for example, is it to make sure that there is somewhere to park? Uh, Kat, I think you're the only person I've ever met who's done extensive research into the future of car parks this is something that preoccupies a lot of city planners, isn't it? Once we've got all these cars going, where are they going to stop?
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's that. And there's also, you know, if I think about it in terms of my day job as someone that's involved in the development of property, there's also, well, if I'm building something that's going to be complete in 20 years' time or so, do I need to put a car park in? So it's not just what do we do with the existing assets, but actually do we need to keep building them as well? And obviously, you know, we are increasingly pushed for space in our cities. So there's this question as to to what extent is a car park the best use of space? So when it comes to driverless cars and car parking, I think there's a couple of main things to think about. Firstly, what it allows you to do if you have a driverless vehicle is you no longer actually need people to go into car parks and you don't even necessarily need to have the car park next to the place where you want to go. So if I want to go to a shopping centre, I can get dropped off by my driverless vehicle, go and do my shopping. The vehicle can either go on its way and pick up other people or it can go be parked somewhere elsewhere, perhaps on the outskirts of the city where land values are cheaper.
0: Natalie, when you're working at... Arcadis, how much are
3: the clients that you work with actually factoring this into their plans and their designs? We have actually are working for a client who owns a number of car parks across Europe and they are now in the process of selling their car parks. What they're basically saying is that we actually want to sell our assets because we believe that these assets in the future are going to be heavily either remodeled, might not even be car parks in the future. We've heard a lot about maker spaces, inviting small businesses or entrepreneurs to come and share the space or else really make the car park a bit of a destination area, whether that's in um, redeveloping them for um, experience or even just inviting schools back in.
0: Luke, you are dealing with local authorities who are having to make space for this new future of driverless cars in Greenwich in London. What does this say about who controls our roads when you have private companies coming in I need only mention Uber in London, and the effect on the city's streets have been something that no one could really predict. And this has left local authorities absolutely on the back foot.
1: That's right. And in London, we've seen a lot of launch and defend tactics from mobility service providers. So people putting vehicles into cities and then defending from regulation trying to get them out of the cities. It's a very tough issue for cities to deal with and actually the best thing that they want is to be involved every step of someone deploying in their cities. We have worked quite closely with TFL, we're working with the borough of Greenwich to make sure that everything that we do and, and the service that we are designing for the city
2: is very compatible with the city.
0: Transport for London and Greenwich though aren't going to be in a position to say we don't want
2: to do this. You're right to point out that actually there will be for example either certain boroughs or governors bodies that will be reluctant to say no. And I think that is a potential concern because what we often hear is, oh, well, you're being anti-innovation. Oh, you just don't want to try new things. You know, this is Luddites. You're fighting the future. I think we should be wary necessarily of innovation for innovation's sake. Potentially a bit of a pushback or a bit of rigour, again, about challenging these companies to articulate what their benefits are going to be shouldn't be seen as necessarily being anti-innovation.
0: One thing that leads you to think though uh, Natalie is that if you start trialing cars on let's say borough by borough or city by city you risk not having a coherent and cohesive system in which driverless vehicles can work and you end up with a little sort of village mentality of people protecting their own territory.
3: I think essentially it will require the support of the general public and specific legislations for cars to work there. And for the most part, an umbrella organisations will be national ones, so unlikely to have lots of splintered groups. And that's really ultimately what you want to aim for. You need real experts dealing with as few international organisations as possible. You want the big firms to not having to deal with a lot of smaller councils. Infrastructure will likely still be built on a local level, but governance ought to be on a national level.
0: Final question to all of you. Will there ever be a day when we laugh at the idea of ever having to have driven our own cars?
1: Luke? I would love to think so, but it was a long way off from now.
3: Natalie? Probably yes, but it will take a long time.
2: I can see it happening again in the longer term. I think particularly from a safety perspective, we will wonder what on earth are we thinking letting humans get behind the wheel of these vehicles?
0: That brings us to the end of today's show. Natalie Zauber from Arcadis, Luke Rust from Immense and Kat Hannah from Lendlease. Thank you all very much for joining us. And if you enjoyed that, then make sure you subscribe. You'll find fresh podcasts popping up every month, all at arcadis.com UK. And there'll be lots of extras too, all to do with the future of our cities. You've been with Long Story Short, the Future Cities podcast from Arcadis UK. I'm Emma Nelson. Goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.